Well, if you will, open with me in your Bible to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. been making our way through this particular psalm the last couple of weeks, and today we are going to conclude it by looking at verses 31 down to verse 50. We have just sung about being in Emmanuel's land where he is all the glory, where his light is shining brightly. And as we look at this psalm this morning, that's the trajectory we're moving in. This is a psalm, as we've seen, that David writes as a kind of song of victory and triumph once his kingdom has been established, his enemies have been defeated, and there is, to a relative degree in David's day, peace in God's land. As we've seen, this is ultimately pointing us forward to the grand climax and fulfillment of Christ, the greater David, and his greater kingdom. We'll look at that together this morning as we pick up again in verse 31. We'll read together down to the end of the psalm in verse 50. This is, of course, David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we read, beginning in verse 31, For who is God but the Lord, but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, 
And exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and His offspring forever. Well, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, in accordance with Your Word and Your promises that You made to David when You made a covenant with him, that you would give him rest from his enemies, that you would establish his throne forever. In accordance with these promises, you gave David victory over all of his enemies, both those in the midst of his own land and those far beyond it. And you caused nations, once they have heard of David's might and glory and accomplishments to come to him and to bring their tribute to him and to serve him. And yet we know from the rest of your word that that what happened in David's life was just a foretaste of what would happen in David's offspring. That when you sent your son Christ into the world and he defeated sin and death and you established him at your right hand. He is now drawing peoples to Himself from all of the nations as we have heard of His victories, heard of His conquest against sin and death, that He has crushed it under His feet, and heard as well that He will come again to establish His kingdom on earth forever and ever. And as we have heard of this glorious Gospel You have drawn us to Yourself and drawn us to the King. And so Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we dive into the Word, as we heed the promises that You have given to us, that no matter whatever trials we may be in, we would fix our hearts and our minds upon the promises You've made in Christ so that we might know and be encouraged and be strengthened by the truth of how all of history will come to an end in the glory of Christ. We ask this all in His name. Amen. Well, there are, of course, times in the providence of God when we all come face to face with some kind of evil, some kind of darkness, the realities of a fallen and sinful world. Sometimes it is opposition that comes to us as a direct result of the gospel. You stand on the Word of God. You obey the Word of God. You pursue what is righteous and good even if it is unpopular, even if the world rejects it, 
and you face persecution because of it. Whether that comes through social ostracizing, whether that comes through reviling or being mocked, or in the worst cases, and has what has always been a common experience among Christians, physical harm, physical persecution. Sometimes Christians face these realities, but sometimes the darkness that we face are more common trials. They're things that are not necessarily unique to the Christian, but are nevertheless the results of sin and the corruption that is in the world. Maybe there is strife that is in a marriage that is supposed to reflect the Gospel of God. Maybe there is strife among parents and children. Maybe there is a loss suddenly of employment. Maybe there is deadly sickness. A diagnosis of an imminent death because of illness. All these things, and of course others like them, when they come to us, they can shake us. They can grieve us. They can leave us almost in a state of complete bewilderment. Lost and confused and discombobulated. But whatever the thing may be that brings us pain, the question is, how can we face that evil, that sin, or that affliction and not drift into utter despair. How do we face those things and not grow bitter? Not grow angry? Or again, drift into utter hopelessness? If we're Christians, of course, we are called to follow and to imitate Christ and His apostles after Him. And all of them, we know, endured much hardship. Jesus came to His own, and His own received Him not. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He carried our griefs. Upon Him was laid the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush Him for our sakes. He endured trial after trial. He knew suffering. And yet, throughout His life, He continued to obey the will of His Father and carry out the mission given to Him, even with joy. Paul, as well, we know, had to endure all kinds of afflictions. Physical beatings, imprisonments, sicknesses, being abandoned by his close friends, those he had labored with in the Gospel for years. Men like Demas, who because he became enthralled and in love with the world, abandoned Paul 
in probably one of his greatest times of need. It's, it's one of the most sad, small things you see in Scripture. You know, these, these little parts that you, you often read over really quick. The final greetings in a letter. All throughout Paul's letters, you see, Demas is with me. Demas sends greetings. And then he comes to his in, the end of his life. Demas has abandoned me. Because he's in love with the world. Those are afflictions. Those are sorrows. And yet, what does the Apostle Paul say of all these things? Romans chapter 5, verse 3, but we rejoice in all our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. How do you do that? How do you, in the midst of suffering, right? Not, not at the end of it, not when it's come to its conclusion, not when you, you seem like you've, you've gotten to the, the last part of it, but in the midst of it, how do you rejoice in sufferings? How are you able to live such that you are not utterly consumed by the sufferings, but are able to praise the Lord and live your life to His glory. How do you do that? Well, the only way that you or me or anyone else will ever be able to do that is that you have to have an understanding and a knowledge of and a grasp of and a trust in how things end. You have to have a knowledge of the conclusion of the story. You need the spoiler, right? We all understand spoilers. you got some book you're about to read, some great story, some movie you're about to see, and what happens in all of them? There's all kinds of conflicts and uncertainties, and you don't know what's going to happen to these characters. But if somebody tells you how it all ends, there may be drama still. There may be some intensity in the story, but you know they're going to make it. You're not going to be overwhelmed by it. Filled with all kinds of anxiety. You have to know how the story ends. It's not that you need to know the exact time a particular season will pass or a particular trial will end. We're not granted that knowledge anyways. Sufferings can happen. And friends, they may last years. Decades even. No one ever in Scripture is promised that whatever affliction comes, it'll pass in a couple of months. We're not given that knowledge. But what Scripture draws our attention to time and time again, especially in those contexts where present suffering is being addressed, what it draws our attention to over and over again is the end. It gives us the spoiler. For example, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we find that the Thessalonians there are still enduring much suffering 
Because of the Gospel, they are being persecuted. They are being faithful to God and bold with the Gospel. And because of it, they're being assaulted on every side by even their own countrymen. No national unity is keeping them together because of the Gospel. They are experiencing in many ways, exactly what the early Jewish Christians were experiencing on the day of Pentecost and afterwards when they proclaimed the Gospel and the Jews began to persecute their fellow countrymen because of the Gospel. But in 2 Thessalonians, what does Paul draw their attention to? He doesn't say, give it a few months. Give it a few years. Maybe even a few decades. He says nothing of the sort. No, he says, if you look at me in 2 Thessalonians, if you can turn with me, what does he say? He draws their attention to the very end of the story. And he points to a relief that is coming to them then. He says in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When, Paul? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. The only time you find that word revealed relating to Christ in the New Testament is in the second coming when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus their relief that they need to look to now and hope in is the relief that is found at the conclusion of the story or One could think of Christ Himself. How could He endure the weight and suffering of the cross? He was able to obey the will of the Father even when the cup He had to drink was incredibly bitter. How was He able to do this? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus there is described as the One who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy that far surpassed the sufferings and shame of the cross. And the joy was rooted in the exaltation that would come on the other side of the cross at the conclusion of the Gospel story. It's as if the storm clouds have come on the day of the crucifixion, and Christ is able to see beyond the clouds 
and see the bright shining sun that will not be moved. The clouds will move. They're going to pass. They're going to fade away. What is he looking at? The joy set before him. He's looking on the other side of the affliction. Friends, in all of these cases, we see the same thing. And it's also what we are to do as well. We have to look at the end. It's easy. It is easy to walk with Christ and to live the Christian life when everything's going well. There's no conflict. There's no strife. The birds are chirping. Spring weather has arrived. and All is well. Christian life is easy. But how do you walk faithfully and steadfastly and with endurance and with joy when you're in the midst of your trials and they're fiery? They're painful. Again, you have to know how the story ends and look there. You must see that the dragon is slain and the enemies of God are defeated and the saints are exalted together with Christ so that the battles that must be fought along the way don't seem so daunting and insurmountable. And that's my purpose this morning, friends. I have one very simple aim with us this morning as we conclude this psalm. I want you to see what joy is set before those who are in Christ. But to do this, we have to look at the end of this psalm in two parts. In the first part, we're going to look at this passage with reference to David. And I'm going to give you a kind of flyby overview of the rest of the psalm from this perspective, from David's perspective. But then, in the second part, we'll look at the passage with reference to Christ and see how it is ultimately pointing us to Him and His victory over the world. Now, as we think about this psalm with reference to David, we can notice that the last part of this psalm that we're in this morning can be divided into three sections. There's a longer section that runs from verses 31 to 42. And here, David sings of the victories he had over his enemies which came to him by the power of of God. And he uses all throughout this passage very vivid imagery to communicate this idea. Notice with me beginning in verse 31. He sings of God being his rock again. Indeed, he's the, the only rock because he's the only true God. But he sings of God being his rock because it was God who saved him and strengthened him. It was as if, as the passage goes on, that David is describing that he, he goes out to battle against his enemies and it's, it's like he becomes Samson. Right? We remember Samson, right? He's, by, by the work of the Spirit coming upon him, his strength is, is supernatural. 
I mean, he's able to do things that a regular man is not capable of doing. And this is what David is describing himself as as he rode out to battle against his enemies. He was made unstoppable. His speed in verse 33 is compared to that of a deer. Right? He's got super speed in verse 34, his hands are made so strong that the bow he's using to shoot his arrows is a bow of bronze, right? That's a metaphor. Nobody's actually using a bow of bronze. You're not shooting anything like that. But he's so strong now. He's so stoppable that, or unstoppable that even his weapons are, are made of strong metals. In verse 35, He's carrying a shield that comes from God Himself. And therefore, it saves Him from every assault. It is God's shield of salvation. In verse 36, the paths that He walks on are expanded and enlarged so that His feet never slip. It's as if the idea is he's, he's having in battle to walk on this treacherous mountain that's got a very narrow pathway. And of course, if you take one wrong step, you're falling off the cliff. But as he's walking along this path, it's as if the path is being expanded so that his feet never slip. He never falls to his destruction. And with this strength from God, with God Himself equipping him and going before him, he was able to conquer all of his enemies. And this is what verses 37 to 42 goes on to describe. David pursues his enemies. No matter what they did, there was nothing that could save them from his pursuits. They are beaten, he says, into fine dust. So that as quickly as the wind blowed, so was David's enemies blown away. They might have seemed to be mighty and to be strong, but they were nothing more than dust being blown in the wind. God made David an unstoppable force. And He did so because of the covenant that He had made with him. He did so because He had promised to David that he would establish his throne no matter what enemies may come against him. Then in verses 43 to 45, David there sings of the nations coming to him. They're willingly submitting to him and they're doing so because they've heard of these victories. They've heard of his might and strength. And this here is probably alluding to events and passages like what is found in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There we're told that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And there's mention of battles against the Philistines and with the Moabites and Ammonites and the Edomites and the land of Zobah and the Syrians. These were all nations that were on every side of Israel. North, south, east, west. And David defeated all of them. But the chapter also, 2 Samuel 8, it also tells us about this certain man, a, a king, King Toy of Hamath. This was a a city that was much further north of Israel. 
And when Toy heard of David's victories, particularly against Zobah and the Syrians, he willingly sent his son to David to bless him and to bring him gifts, to pay tribute to him as a king submitting his kingdom under the authority of David's. This is the kind of thing that these verses in the psalm are describing. David's victories over his enemies reaching to the ears of even foreigners. And they came out of their own volition to serve him. Verses 43 to 44, if you notice with me there, it says, You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing or they came powerless to me. And so again, the, the nations hear of his victories and as they're hearing of these victories, they start coming. Then in verses 46 to 48, David blesses God here for subduing all of his enemies under him. He says that God is the one who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. One of the several promises of the Davidic covenant was that Israel would not be afflicted by violent men any longer. And that David and his offspring would have rest from all their enemies. And that's what David is saying here. That the Lord has now done for him. He subdued the enemies under his feet. So, so of course, there's a very real sense in which David is looking back over his own life. He's looking at his persecutions, his battles, his victories, and he's praising the Lord because the Lord had kept His promises to him. Of course, as we've seen before, David understood, understands that his life is a pattern of the Messiah who was to come. Even in the psalm that we read from earlier, Psalm 110, David very specifically applies the same victories and subjugation of enemies to the Messiah, to the Lord. He says in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The, the Messiah will have peoples, nations subdued under Him. And like David, when he determines to strike his enemies down, he will bend his bow of bronze and in the strength of Almighty God, he will conquer them in a moment. Psalm 110, verse 5, for example, says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. That is, on the day of the Lord, when the Lord determines to execute His vengeance against all the ungodly nations and to pour out His judgments on rebellious kings, 
they will be ground into fine dust and blown away like the wind. The day of God's wrath will bring that in a moment. And so the things that David says of himself and his own victories are things that will have an even greater fulfillment in the person of Christ. When we read David describing in verses 31-42 to how God is his rock and how he was able to ride out into battle with the very power of God Himself and trample His enemies down like the mire of the streets, this can just as easily be said of and applied to Christ. And how He will likewise ride out against His enemies and consume them in a moment. One could again think of passages like we read earlier from 2 Thessalonians where He appears in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on the enemies of God and to grant relief to the saints. Or Revelation 19 where similarly He rides out on a white horse to judge and make war and His eyes are like a flaming fire and He strikes down the nations and treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. When the day of God's patience comes to an end, Christ will return and will conquer all of His enemies in a merciless defeat. Now is the time for mercy. Now is the time for grace. But when He comes again in glory and flaming fire, there's no mercy to be given. But there's also, we find, in the psalm, a beautiful connection to Christ that we see particularly in verses 43-45. to A connection that's even in many ways being fulfilled partially now. I want you to remember that in these verses, David is describing the fact that foreigners from the nations had heard of his triumphs. And upon hearing of them, they willingly came to serve Him. Or to put it another way, not only did He rule over the nation of Israel, but He received tribute from and ruled over all other nations. Verse 43 again, You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known serve me. And friends, as Scripture unfolds, we find this very same idea being applied directly to Christ and His kingdom. And you can see this especially in the book of Isaiah. If you'll turn with me there for a moment. I want to look at several places in Isaiah beginning in chapter 54. Isaiah 54. Now this chapter and the following chapters, of course, comes on the heels of that most famous chapter of Isaiah 53. 
which describes for us the work of Christ as the suffering servant. The, 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 the King who suffers, who lays His life down on behalf of His sinful people so that they might be counted righteous. All throughout that chapter, we have descriptions of His suffering work. But of course, as the chapter concludes, we read that not only will He suffer, not only will He die, but He will prolong His days, which alludes to resurrection. And then, because of this work, because of the work of the servant, a command is given in chapter 54, verse 1, to sing. Because of what Christ has done, now sing. Jerusalem here, who has come under God's judgments throughout Isaiah because of her many sins, is now being described as a barren woman. This, of course, alludes to Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was, of course, the mother of the people of Israel and the people of Jerusalem. There's all throughout this chapter an interplay between Sarah and Jerusalem. They are one and the same. And Sarah, the barren woman, is commanded to sing because her children are going to multiply. And Jerusalem, the city of Sarah's offspring, is commanded to enlarge the place of its tent because her citizens are going to become so many. Jerusalem, which has come under God's wrath and has been reduced to basically ashes, is now being called to sing and to enlarge her tents because she's going to be populated in a multitude and, and by a multitude of peoples. This, of course, is something that the Apostle Paul picks up on in Galatians chapter 4 when he's speaking about the people of Christ being the members of the Jerusalem above who is free. And so again, because of the work of Christ in Isaiah 53, God is painting a picture now of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And He's calling His people to sing over her. In verses 11-12, to 12, He even says that her foundations will be rebuilt with sapphires and her walls are going to be built with all manners of precious stones. Then in chapter 55, because of this glorious work and rebuilding and repopulating of Jerusalem, a call goes out to anyone who would hear. Chapter 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And in verse 3, the Lord calls people to come. And, and when He does, He says that He will make with them an everlasting covenant, which is then further defined as the promises that were made to David. My steadfast, sure love for David. In other words, the Lord is inviting calling all of the peoples to come to Jerusalem and to be ruled by the Davidic king. And in verse 5, God says of this very Davidic king, the second David, the last David, the greater David, He says, in quoting Psalm 18, Behold, you shall call a new man to 
that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. So the nations, they have heard of the work of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They have heard now that Jerusalem is being rebuilt with precious stones. They have heard the call of Isaiah 55 to come and to be part of David's kingdom. They have heard the summons of verses 6-7. to Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And when the peoples hear, both among the Jews and the Gentiles, they come. And then we come to Isaiah 56. And here, just as, in, just as in Psalm 18, foreigners are coming to the Lord and to His King. And they're given a promise. Many promises. But one of which we find in verses 6-7. to And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, These I will bring, notice, to My holy mountain. That is in Jerusalem. I will bring them to Jerusalem and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now Isaiah is... Of course, using the language and the ideas and the categories of the Old Covenant to speak of what is to come in this new idealized Jerusalem. The point here, let me emphasize this, the point here is not that the sacrificial system is going to be reinstituted and now you've got nations who are offering sacrifices once again. The point is that this new Jerusalem with its new temple will have peoples from all the nations working and serving in it. Which is to say that the new David's kingdom will be made up of both Jews and Gentiles alike. The new Jerusalem supernaturally populated through the womb of barren Sarah, supernaturally populated by the power of God, will expand and grow and will draw not only the outcasts of ethnic Israelites into it, but even the outcasts among the foreigners. That is Gentiles, friends. That is people like you and me. And it's really the case that we are living currently in the midst of this drawing and gathering moment from the time that Christ was exalted at the right hand of God 
the Gospel of the suffering work of Christ. The Gospel of Isaiah 53 and Christ's Davidic rule and His rebuilding of the Kingdom of God with Jerusalem at its center. This Gospel has gone forth. This summons to come and to seek the Lord while He may be found has gone out. And as Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, that Word and that Gospel does not return to the Lord empty, but it accomplishes that for which He purposes and succeeds in the things for which He sends it. God is, in other words, using the power and the preaching of the Word of the Gospel to gather a people from all the nations to Himself. And when Christ calls His people to come through His Word, you know what they do? They come. They respond to the call of the King. And they come. They hear of His triumphs over His enemies. They hear of His defeat of sin and death. And they come to serve Him knowing that God is with Him and even more, knowing that He is God. If you're a believer in Christ, friends, that's what you've heard. That's the Gospel. Christ died for sinners like you and me and He's conquered the powers of sin and death. And now we foreigners are joining ourselves to the King. But of course, this is not where the promises end. As this gathering takes place, as this new Jerusalem is being rebuilt, repopulated, Isaiah goes on to speak of what this will eventually result in. And what it results in is a beautified, glorified kingdom. In Isaiah 60, for example, Isaiah paints here a beautiful picture of Israel and Jerusalem renewed and given great glory. And I just want to read some relevant passages from this chapter for us. In verse 1, we read this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Jerusalem, arise, shine, for your light has come. And that light is explained as being the glory of the Lord rising upon you. In verse 3, we read, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. At the end of verse 5, The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 6, The wealth is described. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. Verse 10, Foreigners shall build up your walls 
and their kings shall minister to you. Verse 11, your gates shall be open continually. Gates are for protection, friends. Gates keep the enemies out. But because the gates are open always, it means there's no more enemies. They're all gone. They've been conquered. And so the gates remain open continually. Further down, verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Verse 20, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now friends, we don't have to guess here as to what this is describing or when this will be fulfilled. We don't have to butcher this chapter, butcher this text, turn it into some kind of spiritual parable or a metaphor of the church or the advance of the Gospel or even worse, pigeonhole it into a distinctly Jewish millennial kingdom that comes prior to the eternal state. We don't have to do that. The Bible tells us exactly what Isaiah is speaking about here. Revelation 21. What we read from earlier. When the rebellious nations are defeated, along with sin, along with death, along with Satan, cast all into the lake of fire, John then gives us a glorious vision of the new heavens and the new earth, which is simultaneously described as a new Jerusalem. Just as in Isaiah 65. New Jerusalem and, new, and, and the new heavens and the new earth are the same thing. He's drawing on Isaiah. And John says that in this new Jerusalem, there will be no mourning because God will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. When he describes the new Jerusalem, he says its measurements were equally 12,000 stadia, which at the time of this writing is basically the measurements of the whole known world. New Jerusalem, in other words, encompasses all of the land of the earth. Its foundations, we are told, are adorned with fine jewels like sapphire and other precious stones. In verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. And then what do we see? Verse 24 to 26, by its light, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. John is quoting Isaiah all throughout. He's showing us 
what this is, when it is to be fulfilled, how it is to be fulfilled. This is the new Jerusalem that comes at the very end of history. Jerusalem's population is being, of course, populated now. As we've seen in Isaiah, as the Word goes forth about Christ and people's hear of His victories over sin and death and His victories to come over the remaining wicked and the powers of death, they come to Him. They join themselves to Him and the Lord and they're made citizens of that great city. But the day will come when that city will no longer remain in heaven as a heavenly city, but it will come on earth. The heavenly Jerusalem will be the earthly Jerusalem. The day will come when what Scripture refers to as our heavenly inheritance will come down and will become our earthly inheritance. Christ will come, will defeat all of His enemies in flaming fire, Peoples will be subdued under Him and heavenly Jerusalem will become the new centerpiece of God's throne on earth. And He will reign forever and ever. And then will be fulfilled in its greatest sense the words that we read in Psalm 18. Great salvation He brings to His King. Then Christ will lead us in song, singing, God gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. This, friends, is where the story is moving. And this is how it all comes to an end. So when you are in the midst of a fiery trial, when you are becoming overwhelmed and you start thinking that your trials and your afflictions that are assaulting you now are too unbearable, are too heavy, you need to bring your mind here and think of how it all ends and what is in store for you if you are in Christ. The path may seem treacherous. The ground you walk on as you are making your way to New Jerusalem may feel as if it's unstable under you. But if you know the eternal weight of glory that awaits you, then you can say in confidence, in trust with the Apostle Paul that all my sufferings are nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So friends, I simply want you this morning to be strengthened and encouraged because if you are in Christ, your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And no matter what sort of difficulties may assault you on the way there, 
That is a name that is etched in eternal stone that can never be moved. And he will bring you to that eternal glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word, in all of its glory, shows us the glory that is to come. It shows us the exaltation of Christ, the right hand, the majesty on high. And it shows us all of the kings of the earth bringing in their tribute, coming to serve and minister in the presence of the Lord in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, which will take place on a glorious, restored ground. It is to that that we long for and we look to. And I pray, O oh God, that when those trials that you send to us to conform us, to shape us into the image of Christ come, that we would be able not only to endure but to rejoice in the midst of them, knowing the great inheritance that you have in store for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.